from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a VinePair podcast next round conversation. We're bringing you these conversations in between our regular podcast episodes in order to focus on a range of issues and stories in the drinks world. Today, I'm speaking with Brene Royal, Vineyard Manager of Monterosso Vineyard in the Sonoma Valley. Brene, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, it's I've been meaning to talk to you on the podcast actually for a little while because you are in such an interesting position working with what might be, I don't know, one of one of America's kind of oldest and most storied vineyards. Um, can you maybe, for our listeners who aren't as familiar, kind of just explain sort of where and what Monterosso even is? Yeah, so I'd, I'd go as far as describing Monterosso as one of California's Grand Cru. Um, Monterosso was established back in 1886. So Emmanuel Goldstein and Samuel Dreyfus were grocers in San Francisco and actually purchased about 75 acres in the southwest section of the Mayacamas mountain range, which by 1886 started planting the first grapevines in. So this is over 130 years old present day. Um, so at the time of establishing the vineyard, they planted Semillon, Muscat, Berger, and Zinfandel. But soon after, Phylloxera wiped out most of California's uh, vineyard vineyards. And so they replanted in 1893 uh, onto a rootstock, most of which was St. George. Um, however, working in an ampelography project in 2019, we do have 135-year-old Simeon oh, cool. in 2021. So super, super cool stuff. Um, we're still farming it. Uh, they also completed a three-story gravity-fed winery that still sits on property as well. So the vineyard was set up to not only just grow wine, but to make it as well and then sell it. Um, at this time, the vineyard is known as Goldstein Ranch. Um, Emmanuel himself passes away right before prohibition but by this time they are selling fruit and it's highly regarded and so through prohibition they were selling the fruit louis and martini was one of the purchasers and when he established his winery in 1933 um he was making or utilizing monoroso fruit um as the goldstein family wanted to take a step Back into San Francisco and get away from the farming. They sold the vineyard to Louis and Martini in 1938. And it was three generations of the Martini family that grew up from its initial 75 acres planted to its present day 250 acres planted. And it was actually Louis M that planted the first Cabernet vines in 1940. So we are still farming those today. That is our Los Ninos block, but it really was the Martini family that took the vineyard from its initial dry farmed planting to establishing irrigation and to just diversifying the varieties available on the mountain range. Um, as the Martini family wanted to take a step back as well, they sold to the Gallo family in July of 2002. And so the Gallo family is the present owners of the vineyard. Um, we have maintained that 250 acres. Overall, the vineyard is 575 acres, so quite a bit of land up in the Mayacamas Mountain Range. We sit at an elevation of 690 feet up to 1,300 feet, so we are above the fog line. Um, we are southwest facing, so on a very clear day, you can look out and see San Francisco. Um, we also have a ton of influence from the San Pablo Bay. Um, we're a hot vineyard and we're planted in predominantly a red hill clay loam. So we're not too far from Mount Veter. So we have a lot of volcanic iron rich soil that 
really ties everything together and makes Monterosa wines as distinct as they are. Gotcha. And and when in that process, uh, 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 sort of the history you described, did the sort of the vineyard come to be known as Monterosso as opposed to Goldstein Ranch? So when Martini bought it in 1938, he renamed it in 1940. So Monterosso means Red Earth. Gotcha. Very cool. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the sort of initial plantings there. And I'm really curious, you know, there probably aren't very many, if any, uh, you know, vineyard managers in in America who get to work with vines that old, um, even, you know, to say nothing of 135 year old vines, but even vines that, you know, approach 100 years. And and I think what, this is one of the things I'm most curious about. And I think probably our listeners are like, I, I, I envision, and this is probably wrong, you know, I envision treating a 100 year old vine kind of the way you would treat a hundred year old person, like very delicately, but, but is it actually, is that right? I mean, do they need gentle hands or or are they so they've survived so much that they can kind of take whatever you can throw at them? Um, Depends on what aspect you're talking about, but I always kind of joke that it's my geriatric section of the vineyard. We've actually got about 50 acres or so of hundred plus year old vines. And so um, they're incredibly fragile. So it's very tedious how you have to approach each farming practices, each farming practice and um, both the Semion and the Zinfandel are Zinfandels a little bit younger at 128 years old this year. It's um, baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, an adolescent, um, but it's, it's very tedious. So when we're going through and pruning, it's a lot of, attention to detail with understanding how those vines performed the year before. So you're looking at the canes, you're looking at the vigor, you know, did we have too many positions on those head train vines? Did we not have enough? Um, Are we leaving renewal positions in the right places? Um, You know, how is irrigation? If we have irrigation then there, we still have pieces of the vineyard that are still dry farmed. And so we don't have opportunities everywhere. So you're paying a lot of attention because at the time of pruning, which is now, you need to envision these vines when they're six months out into the season, when they're at full canopy. Yeah. For as old as these vines are, they're still incredibly vigorous. And 2020 was quite the anomaly for a million and one reasons. But our 128-year-old Zen had an average of, you know, four, four and a half tons to the acre. And that's quite the anomaly. So these vines can still give you quite a bit of fruit, but understanding the levels of stress that they could handle at their old age, um, having an experienced crew as we do at Monteroso to understand, you know, what it is that we're looking for as far as production, because we're kind of at the mercy of what they give us. You can always take, you know, fruit off, but you can't add it back on, but you also don't want to get greedy. So it's a lot of TLC. It's a lot of time. Um, Monterosso's got 54 established blocks, but even within those blocks, if you include the sub blocks and just the different areas that we're farming for, you know, you're well over a hundred different sections across the ranch. So having the experience of the team to understand what it is we're trying to express out of different regions in the vineyard, um, what these vines have done, and to be able to make a decision vine to vine, because as I'm sure you've seen in pictures, none of those vines are the same. So one vine might take you two minutes, the next one might take you five, but you have to be able to look at it and understand what did this vine do and how do I farm it so that I maintain or elevate quality in the wine, but also extend its its vine health and its livelihood. Gotcha. Is there is there a significant difference um, in those older vines in terms of 
like when they when the fruit ripens or or are the differences pretty minimal no it's pretty extreme actually um i was in a couple of Zinfandel meetings earlier and that's probably the most significant where you can see it all the way through harvest. Um, these old vines are usually on rootstocks like St. George that can get down, you know, 20 plus feet in the ground. So they have access to water and nutrients that have been leaching through the soil for decades. So while they're stressed, they utilize water and nutrients as they see fit. So whenever we're going through farming practices, we're always managing those vines first because we don't want to be wasting resources on, you know, wood that we won't keep. Um, But they're also first to do most things. So Zinfandel is always out the gate with bud break and everything else. In fact, I was looking at bud break today because in both 2018 and 2019, I already had an inch of growth. Um, so they're usually off to the races. Um, and same thing with Simeon. Simeon is, is more gnarly than the Zinfandel is, but through the season, it's always kind of first and it's definitely about two weeks ahead of cab. But then even when we're sampling for harvest to make a harvest decision, you can pick the fruit one day and in the field, it's probably, you know, let's say 23 bricks. But if you let it soak up overnight or if we harvest it and let it soak up in tank, you could see an increase of two to four bricks. Oh, wow. So, And that's very, very unique and more pronounced in the old vines than anything else on the property. So um, the old vines will definitely give you more of a challenge and more opportunities throughout the season. And then in the wine, you really have to be strategic about when you're going to pick and just maintaining, you know, the alcohol levels in the wine and the quality that you want to, to have and, and the nuances that you want to express. You have to watch the old vines in more than anything else because they can get away from you. So I want to talk a little bit more about the wines that are made from, from the fruit you grow, but I, I want to take a moment to come back and sort of, uh, touching on sort of how you came to Monterosso and what your own background in viticulture is. Yeah. So um, (laughs) I don't come from a farming family. Uh, I I was the lone grandchild that wanted to work in my grandmother's garden, mostly doing flowers, but doing a little vegetables here and there. And um, I got into FFA because I wanted to travel up and down the state for free. And I started raising pigs, doing all of the judging teams. And then Fast forward to 20 or 2008, I got a scholarship to attend Chico State under animal science, but did not stay in animal science too long because they do have a meat slab. And that's, that's where my emotional connection kind of drew the line. Um, but I started drinking wine in my senior year of college and uh, Apothic Red was my jam. So when I got to my last career fair, I saw Ian J. Gallo there with a magnum of it. And I basically went up screaming like, okay, how do we make it work? <laughs> I love drinking it. I've never seen a grapevine closer than being on I-5. But, you know, I have a crops and horticulture degree. Let's make this work. And after a very, a very long uh, two-hour interview, um, I got the job at the end of March or something. And then I ended up starting... Uh, my first day was a week after graduating from Chico State. Wow. And then my third day on the job was at Monteroso. And I can tell you that it was not love at first sight. Um, that was uh, my first time seeing a rattlesnake up close in person was on, on Monteroso. I believe on my first day, I was covered in three layers of the Red Hill Clay Loam. I had ran over my work phone. 
Um, to this day, there's not a block that designate, you know, different blocks from each other. So just being on expansive Monterosso and trying to figure out A, where I'm at, and then B, just hearing, you know, all of its legacy from people, anybody who gets to be associated with Monterosso or works with the fruit or is tied to it in some way speaks so highly of it. So here I am, you know, this 24 year old, like what? Like, you know, there's no cell reception. It's difficult out here. You're two miles from the nearest highway. Like it's a situation. And so it was definitely a struggle. Um, but I completed my six and a half month internship and then a couple months later, came back as the viticulturalist across both Monterosso and the Russian River properties that I was working on. And then 11 months into that role, became the vineyard manager of Monterosso. So it's been very, very fast and furious. Um, but, you know, there's no better place to learn. And 2021 will be my seventh vintage as the vineyard manager. So um, it's it went from being you know, kind of this uh, daunting place to be to now I'm like, you know, having to pinch myself every day because I get reminded almost daily of vendors being like, do you know people pay thousands of dollars for a weekend to what you get to wake up to? And, (laughs) you know, just working with people, my irrigator, this will be his 40th year um, of dedication to Monterosso. So my team's been working on Monterosso, you know, longer than I've even been alive. So I've really come to just it's beyond falling in love. Like I, I will forever in a day uh, think about Monterosso because it's such a legacy to be a part of. And now that we've, you know, in- implemented things that is going to progress the vineyard for, you know, hopefully another hundred plus years, that's just very special to me. So I take a lot of pride being, being the vineyard yeah. manager and being able to farm these vines. Absolutely. So um just a, one more quick question about that, and then I want to talk about the wine a little bit. So when it comes to the the team that you work with, about how many people are sort of full-time dedicated to Monterosso? About 25. So we can get through the season up until harvest um, with 25 people. Gotcha. And that's just kind of the luxury of having Cabernet Sauvignon planted to almost half of the planted acreage. So there's, in a normal weather year, you get a really nice separation between Zinfandel and the other eight varieties and then Cabernet Sauvignon. And let's talk a little bit about Cabernet, because I, I bet that that's for most people who've had uh, a Monterosso vineyard designate wine. It's probably been a Cabernet, not obviously exclusively, but that is, as you said, sort of the, you know, a, a good portion of what's grown there. Mm-hmm. What what in, maybe first from just the 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 vine and, and grape side, what sort of distinguishes Monterosso Cab and then maybe also in your experience sort of in the glass? So growing wise, I would say mountaintop Cabernet versus valley floor Cabernet. You're just going to see a little bit more stress, but you're still getting pretty average yields across the board. Uh, Monterosso is a little bit more difficult because we're farming everything from one years old to 81 years old. And we also have um, nine different trellises in our Cabernet Sauvignon, dependent on what block you're in. And then we've got 16 different spacings. Okay. So um, the the complexity is inherent to where the vineyard is. So I think for us, certainly being on the mountaintop and certainly being on Monterosso, we just see a little bit more stress. So we see tighter clusters. Um, we see a lot more concentration in the fruit. And then 
regardless if it's Cabernet or any of our other varieties, you get this Monterosso signature, which is very much driven from the volcanic iron-rich soil, that terroir of acid and tannins and big structured wines that over time kind of relax and balance out a little bit. But upon initial release is a bit of a fruit bomb. They can, they can, if you're not used to a high alcohol wine, Monterosso wines are, are just like not for the faint of heart. Like they're going <laughs> to be big and they're going to be very expressive. And, you know, I, I think something that's so lovely about Monterosso is that just signals, you know, a very ageable wine. And so we've had wines from the sixties um, that are still drinking and still have life in them. So um, Monterosso is incredibly distinct. Uh, Cabernet, I think, is the most expressive and the easiest one to pick up. But across all of our varieties at Monterosso, you get the signature of spice, acid, tannins, minerality. Um, it's it's incredibly unique to Monterosso versus the other Cabernet Sauvignons. So, so maybe setting aside Cab, is there another variety that you grow that you are like this sort of your favorite, whether it's to, to work with or to drink? Uh, Zinfandel. I am forever and a day <laughs> a Zinfandel girl. Um, I, I like uh, drinking Zinfandel because I think it's so, so expressive of what decision, decisions were made in the vineyard. Going back to our head trains in, you know, we've got positions that are two inches off the floor all the way up through over six feet. So you have so much variability in that type of uh, vine training. And then Zinfandel itself is never uniform. So you have variability with airflow and sun exposure and ripening within the cluster. So we're so intense about farming those vines just to try and make something that is going to marry well with another block. We have to have an increased level of scrutiny. So we're always kind of babying those vines. And I used to call it a headache, but more times than not, it's just this really fun challenge because you know you're going to get something good. But because you know this vine or this wine is going to show everything you did in the field, you really want to, you know, you want to get good. You want to hit the nail on the head. So because I, I can taste every decision we've made vintage to vintage, I really, really enjoy drinking our gnarly vines Zinfandel, but then also our other producers who make Monterosos in. You can really just taste through all the nuances that make Monterosso special, regardless of who's making it. Um, so Zinfandel all day. Well, into that, to that sort of thing you alluded to briefly, you know, for people who are interested in trying uh, wine made from Monterosso grapes, what are, I mean, obviously within the sort of, uh, like what are some of the labels to look for, I guess? Two of our longest standing um, outside producers would be Bedrock Wine Co. and Robert Bialy Vineyards. So, they would have the longest standing besides Lewis and Martini that where you can find uh, Monterosso, Zinfandel, and now a little bit of Cab. And then uh, Louis and Martini, obviously, for people who, and that's, they, there's a, there are a number of different bottlings, all Monterosso designate, right? Yeah, we have five flagships that are made at Martini. So we have our Cab Franc, we have our Malbec, we have our Gnarly Vine Zinfandel, our Cabernet Sauvignon, and then a Mountain Red. So okay. I always... I mean, I'm not even being biased, but our wines here at Martini really are, I think, the most intimate expression of Monterosso, just because Mark Williams and Michael Eddy and I are just always out there. I think we just like geeking out with each other, but we're always out there 
you know, making decisions throughout the season. So um, the best expression is going to be at Lewis and Martini. Very cool. And last kind of question for you, I think, um, is, you know, one thing that you mentioned is, you know, this is sort of pruning season for for you and your team or has been. And like, I think sometimes people who, who aren't uh, as familiar with like what grape growing actually involves, and, and I certainly put myself in this category some of the time, <laughs> don't realize just kind of how much of a year round process it is to some extent. So what is what is this sort of like, uh, you know, February, March, April period look like? Like, what are you guys looking to accomplish in the vineyard? So, yeah, grape growing is definitely year-round, even if you don't have actively growing vines. Right now, we are wrapping up pruning and tying. So we're really just laying the foundation of how many positions we want to see on a vine with an assumed, here's what we expect yield-wise. So we're tying things. We're making sure things are structurally sound. Uh, just thinking back to those head train vines that don't have any trellis materials in them. We are working on our weed pressure and just really setting up to get going. Uh, we're all kind of eagle-eyed out there right now because the weather's been pretty warm in Northern California these last couple of weeks. Um, so we are expecting bud break anytime. And from then, that's really going to kick off our season where we start looking at fertility and just just planning. But now we have something to protect. So right now, it's just, you know, the calm before the storm. Um, but... We're always planning. I know for me, the vineyard's alive, whether you have active vines or not. So if we're worried about erosion control, if we're setting up hedgerows for beneficial pests, um, if we're doing landscaping, if we're doing, you know, just maintenance around the ranch, um, it's pretty active all the time. And then for me, just planning out, you know, work. this is the time that I get to have a lot of one-on-ones with different winemaking teams to understand their goals, understand what we liked from the previous season, what we didn't like, what we thought we could improve on, what maybe we need to redevelop. Um, so for me, I'm tasting through wines and just really understanding what my customers are after. Brené, I really appreciate your time, your insight into, as you mentioned, one of the sort of Grand Cru vineyards of America. Uh, really, really interesting to learn more about Monterosso and what it's like to run a an iconic vineyard. So thanks again so much for your time. Really appreciate it and look forward to continuing to taste the wines down the road. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.